The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good Tuesday morning, everybody. This is Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. Hey, I heard my name last hour with Brian Barnhop. People are interested in right. how I have this show for 30 years. <laughs> hey, it's grueling to do a show like this. Ask Brian Barnhart. <laughs> Actually, I've enjoyed it. It's been very good to me. Of course, great guests like Dr. Fred Gertz always has helped me. You've been, how long have I, you been on my show? Well, I used to be on once a month a long time ago, and now I'm on... You graduate yeah, every time, so uh, it's probably ten years at least. I would say at least. Yeah. Well, we're always glad to have Dr. Fred Gertz, and my regular guest as well, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management, his certified financial planner professional, Ryan Repco. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. Are you taking care of those grandkids of mine? Doing my best. Do you still have his fort out there that was in the pictures? Yeah. Is despite it? a lot of rain, we still have some of that <laughs> up and going. I think I, we're all safe now. I, I've, I've had my two shots, and, and I've two had one, you, and two of you have had. COVID. Yeah, we had COVID, and plus we've had our, uh, I guess we got, you got the Pfizer shot, too. Yep, And I we did. both got the yeah, Pfizer I, I, shot. I told uh, Ryan that there was an article yesterday in the Wall Street Journal that people who've had it don't need the second shot, so you should check it out. Yeah, you know, I'm supposed to go back March 12th, and I'm, uh, more, well but ever since I've, but, you know, of course, once you get your shot, then you start reading everything yeah. once again, and it seems pretty clear. I'm not sure it's 100% settled, but it sure seems to be from a probability standpoint that you're in pretty good shape with just one shot, at least the Pfizer shot. I, one I read about, I don't know about the other. So I'll still get my second shot and, you know, play it safe and uh, go from there. But anyway, glad to, glad everybody here is healthy and I hope everybody out there is healthy as well. It seems like the more I read Dr. Fred, it, you know, the most recent article I read was from John. Not that this show is about COVID, but it's a big part of what's been going on in the economy and or partially stock markets, suppose, or at least people are intrigued why the stock market could be at all-time high or near it. Um, it seems like he said, look, by April, this thing could be pretty much wound down. And right. maybe that's what the economy and the stock market's been sniffing out, that maybe things were a little more optimistic than we had hoped. Right, and I think we talked about last time that the uh, uh, stock market was uh, forward-looking. And so the fact that we've had good news the last couple of weeks hasn't had much impact on the market because it was already probably incorporating that information or those expectations because there seems to be really strong pent-up demand now that started to manifest itself. So, Well, we saw a huge retail sales. They were up 5.3%. That was kind of a blockbuster start to 2021 in January. I think they were expecting 1.2%. So I think you're spot on there. Yeah, and then travel is probably going to take off uh, a little bit later, but uh, that's probably going to be really huge because of the pent-up demand there. Yeah, and we're going to see another shot in the arm for lots of consumers. It's amazing. You know, I'm stunned by the amount of people that are going to get the additional 1400 and then have gotten in the past that are just saying, I don't know why I'm getting this. <laughs> yeah. I don't need it. Um, they're not sending it back, by the way, I, right. I noticed. Um, but there seems to be this consensus, a building consensus, anecdotally, just people I talk to that maybe it could have been targeted a little differently. Right. Uh, a little more pinpointed, but hey, such is the nature of politics. I, yeah, you're talking about uh, there's always a trade-off between uh, doing it right and doing it uh, fast, and their, their emphasis, I think, was more on getting it out there 
quickly so the, the targeting takes second place so you have a lot of wasted uh, money going different places but if you waited to do it just right it might be uh, detrimental because it wouldn't have the impact when it needs to be there. Is it really stimulus? The reason I ask that is that 1.9 million isn't coming from Mars or Pluto. I mean, it's yeah. coming out of future tax receipts. I yeah. take it since we're borrowing the money. Yeah. So, it, isn't it? We're just taking. Are we, you know, depressing the stimulated to stimulate the depressed? I mean, are, well, are you taking it from one pocket and just putting it in another? To, I mean, to a certain not, extent, and it may well be. Uh, a temporal kind of thing where we get stimulation now and we'll probably have uh, somewhat slower growth in the future because of that, but it may be very well worth the trade-off. There's kind of an interesting uh, debate that's developed, and it's actually among uh, Democrats, that uh, kind of cent- centrist Democrats now, like uh, Larry Summers, the former Secretary of Treasury and President of, um, of Harvard, is saying maybe this is too much, and it is. some of the more traditional uh Democrats are saying no. It's better to be if you're going to be wrong. It's better to be on the wrong, be wrong on the side of too much rather than too little. And of course, it's sounding off the alarms uh, once again for potential inflation. But it always strikes me that inflation is more about devaluing the dollar right. uh, than it is about prices rising. It's kind of like blaming high prices for inflation. Seems like you're blaming this, you know, wet cement for rain. Yeah, um, and, and there are always different sides. Someone said, well. Uh, this will be good for people who want to buy CDs. Well, maybe so, but if you buy a CD at 1%, inflation goes up from one5 to 3%, you're no better off. So, uh, But it's, 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 it's interesting to watch. I think everybody's looking back to the 70s and say, oh, we had inflation. But the, nobody seems to, real, to recognize that it was all about Nixon wanting to devalue the dollar. And when you devalue the dollar and you're paid in dollars, you're getting soggy dollars, so yeah. you're going to have to push wages up more because your dollars are worth less but that isn't i don't know is in my simple brain maybe too simple it just seems like well nixon wanted to devalue the dollar so we had inflation and when uh it's carter did the same thing but once volcker and uh, uh president reagan decided we don't want inflation they just quit they reversed the devaluation of the dollar and People began selling all their land and art and commodities, and they began putting it in real businesses, and the stock market takes off and the economy takes off. Is it that simple? Well, I don't think it's that simple, but it's also it's not. I didn't think so. Darn it. <laughs> it's not You're that. so close. I just thought that, I had it figured out, Fred. It's not that painless either. Uh, these, these kind of changes uh, require uh, lots of adjustments, and uh, some people gain and some people lose. That's one of the problems with uh, in inflation, that there's the – something called a menu problem where you have to keep reprinting your menus. But that's a small thing. But there's also all kinds of redistribution that occurs between debtors and lenders and equity holders and all kinds of things that that, uh, make things very divisive during an inflationary situation. So inflation is not painless, but it's not into the world either. I agree, but it, again, it, it seems like it's a political system's desire to, well, we don't right. want to pay the price for inflation, so we're right. going to put it on our people by devaluing right. their currency. That's what happened after World War One, when Germany, yeah. at least my understanding and reading is, you know, they had all the reparations and the political class yeah. didn't want to pay for all the reparations yeah. after World War One. so, well, they devalued the... Yeah, that, that's a little bit, we're not talking about well, I know thousands of percent. We're talking well, about, literally uh, thousands of percent. Yeah, but my but, point is, it was a decision yeah. to devalue the dollar. Yeah, it, it, when they made a decision to stop devaluing the not the dollar, the German mark, 
it, it that that part ended that right. inflation ended and also it's a it's a backdoor way of reducing the debt loads because uh if you have six percent inflation uh the, the debt is in real terms is uh being reduced by six percent every year now it's pers- it's not uh, not happening because we have such low inflation is that part of why we went from let's say a hundred some odd percent of gdp uh debt uh, in the after the war in the 40s and during the war in the 40s to by the time you get to the early 80s it was you know a third of gdp yeah. is well, that, I mean, was that an inflationary phenomenon mostly or just partially yeah. uh, two i mean we had uh, really tremendous economic growth after world war ii until the early 70s so that made the uh, denominator larger and larger and larger and then the other thing was the inflation situation but inflation really uh I never heard a lot about inflation until – I mean, I heard – but never uh, – was a great concern until the uh, 60s and really the la- latter part of the 60s. There was a period in the Kennedy administration where they tried to put the clamps on uh, some big companies like steel to keep them from raising their prices. But until the, the mid to late 60s when we had the Vietnam War, it, it's the first time that inflation really uh, came to the fore, I think, in recent years. And then in the 70s, they blame, you know, high oil prices. But if, yeah. if your oil is, is denominated in dollars and you're, yeah. once again, you're get gets back to my devalue yeah. theme. Uh, it, it's, it, I don't really have a, the data for that. I'm just wondering if you can remember. It wasn't so much of an oil shortage. It seems like we had just as much oil coming in from the Arab country or from OPEC countries. It was just that the prices were had quadrupled. No, I think there were t- there were. T- uh, two spikes where there actually was a, a major reduction in, in supply, <laughs> and, and that caused uh, all kinds of things. And the attempt to uh, deal with it through uh, rationing didn't work very well. So I think there was actual reductions. <coughs> but uh, over the long run, that wasn't really the case. And uh, again, it, but I, I think that the other story, which again, you can tell stories about all these things, but uh, the 60s was a time when. Uh, we sort of built up a lot of inf- inflationary pressure because the Johnson administration wanted to fight the two wars at the same time: the With war the same on pov- dollar. the war on poverty, and the war on in Vietnam. And uh, that that the story goes created a lot of inflationary pressure that rode us all the way uh, rode all the way to the uh, 1980s when we had the Volcker Reagan uh, turnaround. So again, that, so that's the that's the scare story. That maybe right now we're in kind of a period where it doesn't seem like inflation makes much difference. But we're spending huge amounts of money, and then it's going to reappear at some point in the future. I read an interesting article, at least interesting to me, where and I forget the author's name. Maybe I even I, I didn't bring it. I just was glancing at it this morning. I should give credit. But his theory was we really shouldn't look at debt to GDP. We should maybe look at uh, debt to total tax receipts. Right. And in fact, at the beginning of the country, it was 20 right. times. Uh, and it's, you know, it's been really yeah. high. And right now it's kind of not at any out, outrageous yeah. levels. And maybe not, yeah. maybe we don't, maybe you're right, Dr. Fred, in the near term, we don't have to be so as worried as yeah. I was about all yeah. this debt piling up. Yeah, the other way, it's sort of like changing the, uh, you know, moving the goalposts or changing the scoring system. But some people are also talking about the, uh, the idea of uh, debt to GDP isn't really as important as interest payments to GDP. And interest payments are not that high right now because of the really low interest rates. So I don't know whether that's just an excuse for the, to, 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 exp- uh, to try to uh, apologize for the high spending or whether it's actually a, a better way of looking at things. Well, it sure, sure seemed to me that with 
trillions of dollars sitting in savings and checking accounts, it, additional trillions, a couple of trillion then compared to even last year, um, with, the, with the household balance sheet probably in the best shape in decades. Well, by that, I'm referring to, I suppose, specifically household debt service to discretionary income is well, the Federal Reserve of St. Louis, their charts only go back four or five decades, and it's lower. That debt service amount relative is lower right. than ever. you got personal savings rates. Of course, that's it baked into the amount of money in savings and checking, et cetera. And now we add a million nine into the economy. Of course, in reality, yeah. we're not. You know, we're just taking it from one person and giving it to another. But it's still going to have yeah. a, an impact. Sure. Maybe we won't get as big of an economic boom as because it's already priced right. in. No, I think that's that's right. And and again, uh, it has to change expectations for the future about higher taxes, things of that sort. So again, I, th- I think that right now uh, there, there are lots of different ideas around, and no one knows which of those is correct. The the other idea that's been coming to the fore recently is that. Uh, the, the big increase in the money supply now is different than it was in uh, 2007 to 2009, where it was basically uh, there to stabilize the balance sheets, and now it may go beyond that and have some more impact. So you can always find a, a, a scare story out there if you if you look far enough. Yeah, well, up to the last few days, the uh, stock market was at all-time high a few days ago, and now the tech stocks and in the last few days have really gotten the areas that were really on fire, yeah, including it, the Apple stocks and the Teslas of the world. They've really been hit pretty hard in price. Yeah, a lot of people may, may not know that if they just look at the Dow Jones. Right. Uh, but, and again, there's also stories. Uh, you've been talking about the, uh, like the, uh, uh, the, the, not the headwind of international stocks. Right. Those have been turning around now. Yes. And now they're talking about bubbles in India and all kinds of yeah. things. So you can never win. Yeah, what I, my, kind of my assessment of the world is if you look at the Schiller, Cape, you know, price yeah. earnings ratio, which is just a long term measure of how much people are willing to pay for a dollar of earnings in particular countries. You, the U.S. is is quite large. It's it, it, the, it's that PE ratio has gone up fifty percent over the yeah. last ten years. It's at thirty, and it was at thirty or thirty one before the twenty nine crash. So you yeah. got a lot of people probably trying to scare people. The the one thing I noticed though, Fred, looking at the data, because I'm building a computer program and I'm trying to implement or you know add the cape valuations do matter into it and i was talking with the the professor or retired from the university helping me do some of the programming uh, is i said the one difference the reason i'm not too overly concerned with this valuation in the u.s which is about twice as over you know it's twice the valuations as around the world for the most part is interest rates are almost still near zero and that's the one thing in, in 1929 or in the 60s or in, you know, or before the, 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 the 2000.com, you know, the, that price earnings ratio yeah. went up to 45 almost. And then in 2007, 2008, it went back up towards 30. You know, there seems to be something you get into that neighborhood of 30. But in all those cases, interest rates were substantially higher than they, yeah. than they are today. Yeah. So that, that might have more. I'm inclined to think that valuations matter. It certainly leads me, yeah, in the long run. And, and, and for my clients, that's important. And I've been telling them, I think you know, over the next 10 years, my guess, and again, I, I, there's no facts about the future, is they'll, they'll be really happy that 30% of their stock market exposures outside of the U.S. I think they'll be thrilled that, you know, the majority of their um, uh, 
overall equity allocation is in the value area that we have a third in small caps that have just over yeah. the last six months uh, have outperformed the S&P 500 by maybe 20 percent. Uh, that doesn't tell you anything about the future. No. So I'm not but also, the, the, the purpose is not necessarily an increased return, but to give you some st- uh, stability with almost the same overall long-term return. So the, the fact is you're not jumping from uh, U.S. to foreign or from uh, value to For sure. growth all, all the time. But th- that, that kind of balance gives you a kind of uh, inherent stability. Oh, yeah. I have to go through those periods when those things aren't working because they are full-time commitments. Uh, but – you know, I've, I've told clients and I've told the guys that work with me, my sons and, and you know, the plus one, Ryan, my son-in-law. Uh, I said, you know, you guys are, this is really good for you guys to go through when the value premium is the worst three-year relative performance to growth stocks. And I said, we, of course, we're not going to change a thing. And I didn't change a thing in the 90s either. And eventually people figured out why diversification always makes sense, mm-hmm. even when you wish it wouldn't, I guess. Um, so we're, we're seeing a lot of that ground, particularly in small caps, emerging markets, really make up a lot of that gap in a very short period of time, which yeah. isn't, was, is not unusual from and, historical. Yeah. And someone's always going to be able to walk in and say, uh, I beat your performance by investing oh, sure. just, just in S&P 500 for the last X number of years, or they'll say in the future, I could have done better if I put all my money in, uh, in uh, non-U.S. stocks. So sure. you, you never you – never, win the game in the sense of being in first place, but you always win in the long run by, by being up in the, the, the top uh, 25% or so. Yeah, I don't, there's, there's are very few people that I, I think that I think are rational that would argue against diversification, yeah. that, that, that diversification somehow is not something to be desired. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, diversification means that you're never going to own the one thing that's making a killing and it's you never own the one too much of the one thing that gets you financially killed at least um interesting world we live in yeah there's, uh, al- there's always the uh stock market game sometimes they do it at conferences where you predict the dow oh yeah uh, in a, a year out and you're a sure loser if you say i'm going to predict the current dow plus six percent return you either have to go way out on the upside or way down on the bottom side to win the game but you don't want to win the game in real life you want to get that uh six percent return in most cases yeah you just want to you know here's the expected return and i know that what i'm going to get i don't think a lot of people i think it's the investment world's fault because we talk about expected returns as if that's the return you should expect I think the expected return, which is kind of the long-term average return, is what we normally think about. And so we might say the expected return for U.S. large company stocks is, you know, 12% on average, not compounded on average, and small cap stocks might be 17%. But I can assure people they're they're, (laughs) they're going to get anything but the expected return. What they're going to end up getting is what I call the unexpected return yeah. and it's going to be quite variable it's going to fluctuate wildly in the yeah. near term yeah we have in uh, a pension situations sometimes i'm asked the question what is your goal and most people's goal is to be in the top yeah. four tires and yeah. like that and my goal is to capture market returns in the cheapest way possible fred should get a nobel <laughs> prize for that line right there i'm yeah. not kidding i mean if, if if i could get most of the world to just recognize that that should be the ultimate goal is, hey, if I'm taking the risks of, of investing in these things, I just want to be assured I get the returns. Mm-hmm. And, and not, not pay more than you have to for it. Well, that's all part of getting yeah, my returns right, right. and getting my fair share, I guess. But you're right. I mean, that's ultimately, 
expenses are probably what interferes, just from a purely investment yeah. management right. standpoint, not a retirement planning or financial planning, but if just going out and buying a mutual fund. Uh, probably at the end of the day, if you aggregate them all, they all probably do. If, well, in the aggregate, I guess they all do a market return, yeah. uh, less whatever costs are. So uh, costs do matter. I think we have to start using that as a slogan or maybe even put it up somewhere in our office. <laughs> what, Dr. Fred's statement? Yeah. yeah, Fred, write that down so I can remember that. Okay? Trademark it. Send that. Uh, well, it's elegant in its simplicity and so on target that I've spent 37 years and I, I, I don't think something that fast and eloquent would have come out of me. Just And I'm not trying to, you know. Butter you up, Fred. I, you, there's nothing. There's no reason to butter you up, other than Paul. You would have had a, a five-minute dissertation. Yeah, on that I probably would have talked about twenty-word well, sentence. <laughs> first of all, let's define what goal. Is. Yeah, you're right. I, I'm Paul. I'm a talker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why I'm, that's I'm, why I'm in this recovery group. Yep, exactly. Uh, it's my style. I'm working on it, as you know, Ryan. I'm working on it. You're still giving me D's on my report card, though. Yep, Ryan. I want to talk a little bit. Shift a little bit. Uh, and Fred, feel free to weigh in on this because it's it's pretty broad in its sense, and and you know you've lived a nice life. But Edward Edward Jones partnered with a company called AgeWave on a five generation study, comprehensive, including nine thousand adults, U.S. Uh, and Canada. And they explored the four central pillars of living well in retirement, which are, according to their report, health, family, purpose, and finances. And I I think that's. A nice, sim- not a simplification, well, simplification of ultimately, I'd probably, for most people, you could probably get a lot of agreement that those are four common issues. And I'm going to cover them broadly first, and then I want to get into them a little bit, Ryan. Um, they asked the definition of the new retirement. Uh, they asked people, you know, what they would call it. I don't know if they gave them these categories to choose from. I suppose they did. The categories were, is it the beginning of the end, a continuation of what life was? A time for the re- time for rest and relaxation. Gosh, I hope so. Fifty-five percent a new chapter in life. Fifty-five uh, percent uh, a new chapter in life was one of the, the fourth one, and fifty-five percent said it, look at retirement as a new chapter in life. Twenty-two percent for a time in rest and relaxation. Fifteen percent continuation of what life was. Hell, no, it's kidding. <laughs> I, I meant that in a not cussing sense. Um, <laughs> So the first one, health, it says research shows that mental health, psychological and emotional, actually rises. That surprised me a little bit. Yeah, me too. Um, it did say Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia are the conditions that retirees fear the most. I, I see that um, that fear. that my, I see my clients also share that fear. Uh, you, Certainly. Do you you feel that? Uh, I think we see that as the big fear because it's the unknown. It has no cure at this time. So we we look at it as the giant elephant in the room. You know, probably most people anecdotally know somebody, whether it's family or otherwise, who's had it or currently has it, and they see the effects and the impact of what that means on your living and and your quality of life at the end of life. And it it weighs heavily on your mind. Yeah, I can see that in people. And the second one was family. And, again, we're going to circle back to these and maybe in a little more detail. Uh, it says, most retirees draw their greatest nourishment from family. I'm in trouble. <laughs> Generational generosity is the rule. And I thought this was interesting. And I guess I, I guess I see this to some degree. It says, retirees are willing to do whatever it takes personally and financially to support family members in need, even when it means sacrificing their own financial security. 
it's a bad idea, but I see that as pretty common. Retirees without close connection to family and friends face greater risk of physical and social isolation. The next one was purpose. Uh, and again, Ryan, I'm going to ask you about some of these in, after the broad brush. Um, it did show that retirees with a, with a strong sense of purpose are happier, healthy, and live longer. Strongest sense of purpose from spending time with loved ones. That's, that's the report says that's the strongest. Uh, retirees face a new challenge and opportunity, how to use their newfound time affluence. Now, there's a word, Fred, that I had never seen, never thought of, that I will steal and use <laughs> over and over again. Right. But we, I don't think we think about retirement. Of course, you're still as busy, probably. Yeah. You're not, I guess, would you call yourself retired or just? Yeah, I'm retired. I, I, I have a lot of time, and I ended up filling it in different ways. Like I, I, my major accomplishment last year was replacing a, a, a heating element on a dryer that I otherwise would have uh, had someone do Did you Google outside. that first, Fred? Yeah. I knew you did. YouTube. I, I was. I was going to throw it away and buy a new one but then i looked on on the uh youtube they showed me how to do it and it was pretty easy <laughs> you know I've, I've i had the saying that i use with prospective clients and clients that you know people that get the best retirements are the people that have enough money to sleep at night and enough purpose to get up in the morning and i think sometimes i'm real careful how i talk about purpose i think some people think that that means you have to be working and, and that's not really what i mean you just have to have something that i think or it's i at least yeah. this report uh, does support my theory that th the clients that have a greater sense of purpose mm -hmm. seem to be happier and healthier and yeah. and and that when it comes to finances a financial goal of the vast majority of retirees is not to accumulate wealth itself i thought that was interesting but want to have sufficient resources to provide security and freedom to live their lives they want well, that's kind of the same thing, right? That's having enough money. You know? <laughs> so I guess maybe it is. accumulating wealth is maybe a bigger part of it, but not as part of the survey. Many retirees find that managing money in retirement can be even more challenging than saving for it. I think that's true, Ryan. I think that I think I think most of our clients and most retirees would say, yeah, the, the savings was while it was difficult, it was kind of on autopilot in my four hundred one k plan, et cetera. Suddenly. You don't have a paycheck, that steady paycheck's gone, and now you're, and let's face it, for most people, Social Security, or for many people, Social Security might be 30 or 40% of their income stream. I know that there's a large population where it's a dominant part, but for many people, they, they have to start wondering, okay, where's this other 40 or 50 or 60% of my income gonna come from? Yep, and I think and, during like the working years, for people who are would maybe self-label themselves as like diligent savers, they might be throwing every penny that they have that's not needed into savings. And then you kind of flip it, you know, you flip it on its head and you say, now it's time to start withdrawing from those phones. I'm no longer saving. Before I was just maximizing savings. Now it's a question of how much can I safely withdraw and not wear down my portfolio before I'm, I'm, I've lived the rest of my life. So it's, it goes from maximize, just put whatever I absolutely can into it, to now what? How do I maximize my living without drawing it down too fast? And that can be scary, uh, Fred and Ryan, because we're always afraid of, you know, of course, we'll retire at just the wrong time and returns would be terrible. And I'll walk into a gigantic mm -hmm. stock or bond market decline. And then I'm <clears throat> and I don't have as many years to make it up. And yeah. I hear these things every day. And so right. I think that that study but, doesn't surprise me. But you also uh, the, the bad thing is, if you're old, you don't have to worry about 
the long run as much. I mean, you, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen in 30 or 40 or 50 years. You know that it's uh, a much more trunca- truncated kind of thing. So I think you, you have more, in a, in a sense, more freedom that way and not having to worry about uh, what's going to happen 50 years from now. And you were talking earlier there, there, about uh, happiness. And there is kind of a, uh, a self-reported uh, uh, U-shaped curve where uh, young people are pretty happy. Uh, people... Uh, Ryan's age, uh, 30 to 50, uh, have uh, less self-reported happiness probably because of all the demands on their life. And then people your age and even more my age tend to be happier. So there's this strange kind of U-shape. What I've noticed, Fred, personally, and I've talked to a lot of clients about it and people, so it'll get anecdotal, but it seems to be universal, at least the people. Maybe it's a selection bias of the people I'm talking to, of course. But I think part of that comes from, the as you go from your 40s or 50s into your 60s as I am, I've never uh, had less interest in buying stuff yeah. and owning things and accumulating toys and, you know, yeah. boats or whatever that, whatever fill in the blank is. I've never needed so little material things to make me happy. Yeah. A- and uh, too few will make you, can make you unhappy. Uh, do you get a sense that that would that? Do you think there's any general consensus that might be true? Sure, if you look at the the clutter and the uh, redundancy of all the stuff around most people's houses, that's certainly true. And again, uh, I don't really care that much about automobiles, but I don't think people uh, probably worry very much about uh, exactly what car they have when they get that age. That seems to be a '40s thing and that midlife thing. Uh, maybe it's a guy thing too. I don't know. First now that I'm probably a sexist having said that but uh i'm just speculating yeah I, i'm just curious paul now that you've been in the business for the better part of four decades given this study is saying that 55 percent, which is the the majority of this retirement study says that retirement is defined as a new chapter in life do you see that having changed over the past three decades from maybe i don't know the 80s and 90s where it was maybe a different view well i don't know i haven't thought about it um I don't know. I, I really haven't thought about it or paid attention to that. I'm I'm inclined to say that 38 years ago, you know, when I started 37, 38 years ago, whatever it is, um, you know, people. I think life was a little harder. I mean, people don't. I think, you know, we all we hear all these things of how we're all doing worse and our yeah. medium incomes are going down, but. If if I go back to, to when I was in high school in, in that era, 40-some-odd years ago, people today in general are immensely wealthier when it comes to material yeah. things, if, if we're talking about material things. Yeah, uh, a lot of them are, are alive. We would have not been alive uh, 40 or 50 years ago at the same age. They're seen, and, yeah. And like in my case, I have a uh, one hip replaced and, and, and two uh, cataract surgeries, so I I can see well and get around uh, perfectly well when maybe 50 years ago that would not been not been the case. I can tell you, Ryan, if I would have told a 65-year-old or a 62-year-old couple that we're going to be planning on 30-plus years in retirement back then, they would have looked at me like I was from Mars. <laughs> uh, that's changed, that dynamic. I'm not sure there are any, you know, all that more accepting. I, they are more accepting of that. I'm not sure they completely believe that. Yeah. And, of course, when we're trying to determine how long people might need their money. We're basically using probabilities of saying, look, yeah. if a, a non-smoking married couple, one of the two might live 30 years, uh, certainly into their 90s. Um, 
and so that that's probably changed more and just kind of looking back i remember when i first started and i was your age or younger younger actually much younger uh <laughs> you know for a client to walk in with a quarter of a million dollars yeah. not that that isn't a lot of money today so that, that's not my point but you know that was a big that would, would that would have been a big client you know in 1984 or someone Certainly. handed over 250 or 300,000 i suppose now i think in terms of not that when it's your money it's a lot of money so i don't i'm not an arrogant person in that regard uh, but now i think in terms of a of w if a client's walking in it won't surprise me if they have 800,000 to a million too Mm -hmm. That that has certainly changed, right? Uh, again, uh, we, you probably want to point out that this is not a random sample of. Oh, it's <laughs> not. Yeah. People. I mean, you, you're, the people you see in retirement are largely people who have planned for retirement and probably doing pretty well. So oh, you have for this sure. other, other group who didn't get on the program at the right time, and they may be having a lot more challenging kind of situation. I think it's probably even fair to say it's it's a, it's very much a selection bias. Yeah. Um, you you know, uh, so it's not the average person has yeah. three hundred or two fifty, but you know, a typical client yeah. that has enough money that where they think they need to seek advice. Yeah. There's also a, a, a kind of uh, odd situation if you ask people about uh, what are you going to do for retirement. They say you know, uh, maybe thirty five percent say I've it all planned, and a lot of other people are saying I don't know. I have to work longer and rely on Social Security. But then when you actually get to retirees, they seem to be doing a lot better than they expected. So the, the situation for retirees isn't as bad as the expectation in, in many cases. I think you're right. And, and study after study seems to show that. Um, moving on to health, Ryan, it, I, I was interesting. 96% of retirees and 99% of those over age 75, 75 and over, say that health is more important than wealth to live in well in retirement. And Something, here's another word that I will continue to use that I've never used before. We always talk about lifespans, but in this study, this article about the study, they talked about the difference between health span, how, you know, how, how long people enjoy generally good health and lifespan or life expectancy is 10 years. So life expectancy in the U.S., they say, is 78.5 years. I would have thought it was higher. I don't know why. But average health span, the year someone enjoys good health is only 68.5 years. Yeah. I was surprised by that. That that actually triggers me to begin going forward to think about when I'm doing retirement plans of this idea of front-loading the front part of retirement. Yeah. Um, I had never contemplated that difference between health span and life. I see it every day anecdotally, don't we? We see mm -hmm. clients in their 60s and 70s and, and maybe even turning 80, still fairly robust, but there seems to be certainly mm -hmm. um, mainly be due to health reasons. Yeah. But uh, two, the, the two-category uh, fine and not fine is probably not very, uh, very good. There's a kind of diminution over a period of time and, and people substitute certain things when they get older for things they did that were maybe required more energy earlier on. So I don't think it's like the average person over 68 is seriously impaired at that point. It, so to back up your statement about people being relatively happy, 62% of boomers and two-thirds of silent gen, that's people above boomers, older than boomers. I'm not sure if where that starts. Uh, but uh, rate their mental health is very good to excellent. And um, I think that's, I don't know, it surprises me a little bit that it's that high. Location makes a difference. Retirees living in small cities or towns report highest level of mental wealth, well-being, 
well-being, well-being compared to those in large cities of rural, or rural, area, uh, rural areas. I guess that's good news for Champaign. And then here's another different way to think about cognitive ability. I will talk with clients about that, but really they put it in a nice term called brain health. Um, are also paramount importance to retirees today. The most commonly feared condition, as we talked about, is Alzheimer's or other form of dementia. Women have twice the risk of getting Alzheimer's, and more of them fear the condition, according to this study. Without new science and creative medical breakthroughs, and then this is a planning issue for people, and it's one that we deal with in virtually every retirement plan, and this is the reason. Because without new science and creative medical breakthroughs, there will breakthroughs there will be a massive and steady increase in the number of older Americans suffering from this cruel disease, referring to Alzheimer's, that can devastate individuals, families, and their finances. So I, you know, and then it's it's amazing to look at the study and show how few people, and we'll get to that maybe briefly, actually think about it or plan for those issues. Um, it's a standard issue. Do you do a retirement plan anymore? Unless a client says, "I don't, I don't want it in my plan," uh, some goal for taking care of potential long-term care needs. Yeah, certainly. I, for, for most people, that's a goal. Um, I think for the folks who don't plan on it, is for someone that says, "I don't mind going into a Medicaid facility at the end of life, and if I'm there, I'm there, and and that's my life conditions." Most people, when I speak with them in, in our offices, say, "You know." Given the assets, if I have the ability to, I'd like to try to stay in a long-term care facility that's not Medicaid paid. So generally, what does that mean? Why do people self-select that direction? It's a little better quality of care, uh, nicer facilities, general better, you know, possibly better uh, style of living at that point in life. Um, if you've been into one or the other, you immediately know the difference. Um, so for us as a planning issue, it's almost standard issue unless someone is vehemently against planning for this because what it essentially does in a planning standpoint is is it weighs down the amount of spending throughout your life that you could be spending because we're essentially earmarking these funds as needed or or already spoken for at the end of life for a long-term care need even though we don't know it'll show up the plan is assuming it will mm-hmm. so it reduces spending a bit yeah it's you know it's, it's even more difficult because uh uh my wife and i bought uh long-term care insurance maybe 15 years ago had it if i had a chance to do it over again i wouldn't do that i'd self-finance yeah. because the uh, policies actually were considerably diminished either lower coverage or higher cost over the years i i've been much better off uh, and basically you know self-financing is pretty easy if you have you know, you know a certain right. level of, uh, of resources and something i plan on writing a white paper about just based on some research that i've done and some programming i've done and with like I said, with help from a Ph.D. retired uh, engineering professor who's world-renowned in simulation, and it's it's really taking hold. But there's this clear pattern that if you have the right rules uh, in an approach to a retirement plan of when to kick in, press, you know, the right capital preservation rule, when when do we know when to pull in our horns a little bit on spending, and when do we know when to step on the gas? There's a clear pattern that if done properly – that many people really aren't going to have to worry about that, that there's this could be excessive buildup of funds towards the end of our life with proper planning. You can do something about that. You can spend more. But that's the whole part about having a plan with rules all through life. 
but it's a clear pattern. And you know, we've looked at every 30 or 25 or 35 year period since the early 20s. Uh, and it's consistently the case. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be the case. So before Fred has to tell me, you know, I can't predict the future, <laughs> which we can't. And that's, and that's a really important thing to say. It is, it is suggesting to me in a very serious sense that with the right rules and planning, that, that the fear of a long-term care need can be greatly diminished. And I'll be writing more and talking more about that. And if, if clients are interested in that research we're doing, or not clients, but listeners, I'm always happy, as you know, to talk about those such things. Yeah. You know, some people you see their eyes, you know, gloss over. Ryan, when it comes to family, talk about that willingness to support family or even near family members to people's detriment. I mean, how big of a, an issue is that? Yeah, I think for most people it is. It's just kind of like the nature of what you do. The finances are the secondary consideration, and the, the primary is just the well-being of your family. And uh, the study pointed out that 71% of those surveyed said that they would help uh, their own family or maybe even consider, like, folks who are very, very close to them family uh, at their own financial peril, uh, which, although is surprising, it doesn't surprise me um, simply because of – you know, you have these ties. You have someone in your life, a child, a grandchild. How do you turn your back on them in a moment of need? Um, and I think a lot of times, too, folks who might be willing to help out in these instances may not know that they're going to be doing it for a long period of time because they think on the front end maybe they're helping out a short-term need that maybe is prolonged and, and maybe has a bigger effect on their own personal finances than they could have ever envisioned. Um, we see that with, you know, two generations. There's this term called the sandwich generation now where somebody like your age, Paul, uh, very old, very old, old man, people, Fred. <laughs> might, be, <laughs> might be sandwiched in by having to support a parent uh, who's older than you and a, maybe a child living at home. Uh, so they get kind of squeezed on both sides. The or grandkids that come to your house almost every day and eat you out of fruit, whatever the, they call those, fruit <laughs> snack packages fruit snacks yeah i think that sounds like a blessing and mac and cheese by the way <laughs> ryan's little guy the two-year-old every time he comes over I, I think it's a habit mac and cheese mac and cheese no, he, he likes to sit have mac and cheese and watch what is it umi zoomies or yeah. zoomy goomies no, it or? doesn't matter if it's no, yeah. he's supporting minutes. the local economy at least <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. So I know what it's like, the sandwich generation. I'm constantly making sandwiches for your kids. <laughs> yeah, at, at yeah. least your sandwiches leave at the end of the afternoon. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I, I do like yeah. that. The other question we talked about last week is the, the tough love idea about, uh, you know, how much is the right amount. Uh, you don't want to do too little to help, but if you do too much, it may have detrimental yep. longer-term impact. So there's always decisions to make. Yeah. So even if you have the resources, you still have to decide. I think that's where maybe an advisor can help. The advisor can be kind of – I've always said, let the, I've told clients, let me be the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say, look, Johnny and Mary, uh, I, I hear you. One of you lost your job and you need some help. and We want to help you, and we will do everything we can. So I'm going to, to talk to Ryan or I'm going to talk to Paul and ask them, what are we capable of helping with? And whatever they tell us we can do, we will do. Well, sometimes so. – you're capable more than is probably the right amount to give to. Yeah, so you, you could be the bad guy, but you, maybe you want to um, lowball the, the numbers. I, you know, of course, my primary job, and Ryan would agree, I think, is to protect my client, yeah. not their children. Now, many times those things blur, right? Yeah. For legacy goals, et cetera. 
but I'm convinced that, that the airlines have one thing right, that the parents put on their mask before they you know, start to help their children. And that, I think that's, that is a significant benefit of having a qualified advisor helping you work through that decision-making process. Yeah. I think it's pretty hard for a child to say, well, how could you not help me more when the parent's saying, this is what I can actually give you. I'm giving you everything my advisor says I can do without really materially harming myself. How could a, a it, you'd have to be a loving child? So I don't know. I could be have loving. you met Katie? I could be loving. <laughs> <laughs> have you uh, met my daughter? <laughs> you could simply just you know you have if you have that level of respect for each other, there shouldn't be too much shock and, and disappointment when you're saying I've done everything I can do. Um, but it does it, it allows the the parent potentially to be off the hook quite a bit. Um, and absent uh, an advisor or financial plan, you don't have that kind of excuse to to protect yourself maybe. I was interested when they asked uh, retirees, the most important uh, to pass on to loved ones is, talk about that, because that, that, that surprised me. Yeah. It was talking about passing on memories and uh, time together and just Or money stories. or real estate, you know, yeah. or assets. But and, which and one a- took the dominant theme? Assets and, and material things were, were towards the bottom. It was the memories, it was the relationships, it was passing on these, you know, the softer side, the the things that are lasting and um, not money. And I think that's, it, it shows a difference, I think, in, in, you know, a mindset, you know, when you're working and you're, you're diligently saving, that's kind of what you focus on is the financial health of your family. Right. You get to this later point in life where you, you start seeing maybe in your 80s, uh, the life uh, that you've lived is mostly behind you, there's a short window ahead. And you start thinking, what what is really truly lasting and most important? You want to see your family doing well. You want to see the relationships there. You don't want to see the family splinter and 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 break up. So those are the the values I think that most retirees are are most interested in keeping together. This comfort and peace, knowing that when you leave this world, uh, things are still good. But then they yeah. asked, I I don't know if this is like the the potential beneficiaries. The most important to receive from loved ones is. And it was even a higher 83% versus 75% memories, value, and life lessons. I'm definitely in the 17%, Fred. <laughs> I'm all about receiving the money. Yeah. Ryan, where are you on this? Uh, you know, I'll take what I get. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> you give out so much love and joy, you could give the money out. That's fine. Oh, and isolation is obviously a big thing that people worry about. I'm not going to get more into that. Uh, I'm just trying to skim here. I thought one thing that was interesting from this study was – uh, the time, like talking about the time affluence, going back to that yeah. comment earlier, how much, um, according to this study, average uh, retirees spend watching TV? Fred, it, it said 48 hours a week. Yeah. So I'm retired, it looks like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, well, again, uh, I, I probably, uh, I'm not sure whether you include uh, spending time on, on online or, uh, you know, sure. listening to uh, books on. <laughs> or even I, just listening to uh, talk yeah. radio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but it was staggering me yeah. to think that that is, that is the bulk of one's week, 48 hours spent watching TV according to this study. And to think that the point that this article was making is like the essentially the, the tremendous mental and capital loss of these yeah. retirees who have a lot to give could be diverted elsewhere rather than sitting in front of a TV screen. And there might be a lack of options for folks to actually put themselves into. But so the, uh, if you read the obituaries, a lot of – favorite thing is uh, Wheel of Fortune and Tic-Tac-Toe. <laughs> so, I mean, my, my mother used to watch the uh, game show uh, 
uh, Alex Trebek kind of thing oh, yeah. every day, and that was her highlight of her day. So mm-hmm. again, I mean, I think that you don't want to diminish the fact that uh, TV is really a valuable asset to people who are uh, kind of reduced in their ability to go go out and do things. Oh, certainly. And I think the point of the article was really is not looking at the really end term of life, yeah. but the younger retiree. Yeah. When asked what financial peace of mind means to them, having enough money to live comfortably, support a widowed spouse, cover unexpected expenses, they also want to be free of debt, become financial, uh, uh, and avoid becoming financial burden of family or friends. However, I mean, all those things, I guess I would have, I could have put most yeah. of those on there, but this is what I guess didn't, it's higher than I thought. I thought it would be 50%. Three out of four people say of those planning to retire haven't even calculated how much money they'll need in retirement. Yeah. 75% haven't even thought about it. So I guess if you're, if you're not even thinking about it and you don't have a target or a goal, whatever you want to call it, I guess it's no wonder why such a large proportion of, amongst many other, it's multivariate, but clearly that has to be a big part of the problem of why so few people would say that they feel financially secure and if you said, though, they can err on either side. Uh, some people may be terribly worried about retirement. You might be able to tell them you don't, you don't have as much to worry about as you think. So it could go either way. Yeah. I, you, know, you know, by the way, just as an aside, that is a very difficult position to be in when a prospective client comes in and, you're, and you, you hear what they're hoping for yeah. and you see what their take-home pay is and you recognize yeah. it's never going to happen. Yeah. And that is – you know, you're sitting there almost in a pressure cooker trying to figure out how to let them know that, frankly, no, you cannot retire in the next year or two. In fact, it may well be yeah, it may, may be a dozen years or so. And they've so. lost the, uh, the magic of compound interest. If you <clears throat> plan for your retirement when you're 60, it's uh, pretty and, hard. And by the way, getting to that, just getting to a ballpark number is not that difficult. Mm-hmm. If you just did nothing more than said, what's my Social Security check you know, going to be? Uh, 30000 a year between my husband, spouse and a partner, or partner and a partner, or spouse and a, whatever you call them these days. And you say, okay, uh, okay, well, 30000 after spending you know, isn't enough. I really need fifty. Okay, I need another 20000 to come from somewhere. You know, if you just divided that number by maybe 4.5%, you know, you would you could come up with a ballpark number that would be very helpful. And of course, one of the things we do for people is if they don't know that number, we tell them would it be helpful if we sat down with you and we yeah. determined what that number is, so that you can mm-hmm. actually have something. You can have your money pointed at something. Right. Uh, that is three out of four of those planning to retire haven't even calculated how much money they'll need in retirement. I suppose there's a lot of reasons for that. One is they don't really, they're afraid to calculate that number because it may be such that they they see it as impossible and then it would be more depressing. It it might be more depressing to realize that that's just a fractured fairy tale than it is to think, well, maybe something, I'll get lucky and things will happen. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, that was a good study from Edward Jones and what was that, Ryan? New Age. New Age. Um, I enjoyed that. Very, uh, age Wave. Age Wave, yeah. And I uh, appreciate people turning in and listening today. I hope it wasn't too boring. I, I think I think those are some big issues that a lot of people think about and need to think about, but you got to start planning. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for more of Paul Rudy's On the Money Radio Show. Radio show. Thank you, Dr. Fred Gertz and Ryan Repko. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. 
Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.